Welcome to the Building PA Podcast, the voice of the construction industry throughout Pennsylvania. Here are your co-hosts, Chris Martin and John O'Brien. Hello, and welcome to the Building PA Podcast. I am co-host John O'Brien, coming to you from central Pennsylvania, good old central PA. Joined, as always, by fellow co-host Chris Martin on the western part of the state. Chris, time to check in. What's up? Oh, oh that's, that's the shove to wake up, right? Yes. Come on, yes. idiot. Wake up. There we go. How you doing, John? I'm doing well today. It's trying to get a little excited here. It's late in the afternoon, and this is a great topic to be talking about, another mental health-related issue, so it's fantastic. And hi, everybody. My name is Chris Martin. I am coming to you live, well, not live, but recorded from the Swickley office of Atlas Marketing. And we tell stories for companies who build things, and we are off and running in this next episode, John, right? We are. I'm excited. It's a good friend, Rachel Cooper, is with us today. So, yay! Rachel always brings her A game. So, I'm really excited about today's conversation. I think we're going to be talking about reducing stigma, will be a major point, which is awesome for our, for our industry. And for those really loyal listeners of the show, you may remember Rachel. She was one of our first, maybe third, fourth, maybe fifth interview. Yeah. But I know not everyone has a great memory, so perhaps they don't remember you. If you could, you please introduce yourself and say hello to everyone. Sure. Happy to. Well, first and foremost, thanks for having me back. Lovely to talk again, as always. My name is Rachel Cooper. I am the Senior Director of the National Stigma Initiative at Shatterproof, an organization I'll tell you more about a bit later. But my passion is I've worked in the SUD space for over 10 years now, have known John in a variety of capacities, working more specifically on the intersection of substance use and employees and employers. So really happy to be here today to talk about stigma, which is one of the key drivers and main barrier to treatment and recovery. Absolutely. But before we jump into the main topic, maybe we want to set the foundation maybe a little bit and talk about Shatterproof, like what exactly is Shatterproof? And- sure. Happy to. Yeah. So Shatterproof, we are a national nonprofit that was founded slightly over 10 years ago. Our founder, president, and CEO's son, Brian Mandel, our CEO is Gary, passed away due to suicide slightly over 10 years ago, resultant in large part due to the stigmas that he faced, not only while working with an active substance use disorder, but also in recovery. So Gary, after that tragedy, founded Shatterproof, looking to really focus on three separate things, increasing access to and quality of addiction treatment services, and then engaging, mobilizing, and empowering the community. And then what we're here to talk about today, which is addressing addiction stigma. Mm-hmm. Just to define this, you never want to assume anybody is following along, but right. what is the stigma that comes along with addiction? And we all have our own definition of that, but from your perspective and from Shatterproof's perspective, sure. what is that stigma? Well, I really appreciate you framing it that way because that that's exactly where we usually start, right? Is understanding that stigma means different things to different people. So Broadly speaking, right, a stigma or stigmas, or it's a mark of disgrace, right, that is associated yeah. with a particular person or circumstance or quality, right? A whole bunch of different things that stem from stigma or being stigmatized. 
But in this particular instance, what we're really talking about here today is the stigmas associated with substance use or having substance use disorder and can very easily be correlated also to certain mental health conditions as well. But there are really three main types of stigma the way that we think about it. So I'm going to talk about two things. One is that, and then one are some of the components of stigma so we can kind of understand how it manifests. But the three main types of stigma are public stigma. So that's usually what we think of when we think of stigma. You know, we think of like people's attitudes, right? The biases that they hold, the public things that happen when so if somebody makes a judgmental statement or an attitude that that is you know resultant of stigma. And then we have structural stigmas. And when you think about structural stigmas, I usually said, like think about it like this. Who makes the structures that we live in? We do. Mm-hmm. We vote for people that create policies. We influence policies in our workplace. We influence our community. So our biases that we just intrinsically hold because we all have them can get codified into structural level things, which then make it more difficult you know, if, if there are negative attitudes towards people who use drugs or people with a substance use disorder, those be codified into policies, right, that then continue to impact them. The third type of stigma is the self-stigma. And that happens when we, you know, internalize the be- beliefs that others hold about us, right? So, you know, I'm not worthy. I should feel ashamed. I am not competent. If people know about me, then they will do this. So that kind of anticipatory mm-hmm. stigma those are the spaces, those those are the three main types of stigma. So I'll pause there okay. just for a moment before talking about some of those components. But I didn't know if there was anything that you guys had come to mind when we were when I was talking about those three main types. First off, thank you, Ray. Now we're on the same page yep. and we can we can continue to move through this because it, mm-hmm. it's funny. I always thought of the outward perspective as well as the inward perspective. Right. And Never really thought of that third element there, which is something that probably drives so many challenges on that stigma thought. And people respond to that, I think, is is Mm -hmm. important. Absolutely. Yeah. I think about, like, just generally speaking, when you put yourself out there in the world, even if it's for a super positive reason, right? Let's say you're going to go do a public speaking event. And you're an experienced public speaker. You've done it a million times. You still are putting yourself out there to, to like expose yourself to people's judgment. Essentially, that's what you're doing. You're saying, this is what I do, who I am, what I believe, what I'm here for. And still people like then to think about the like the bravery and the courage that it takes to do yeah. that every single day. Yeah. I think that's sometimes a missed part of the conversation, honestly, that there's the extraordinary strength and resilience it takes to do the things that we're asking people to do in this space. Right. right. And then you throw in, then you throw in whether it's drugs, alcohol, all these other elements, you're right. Just that aspect of having the individual and personal strength to be able to stand Mm -hmm. up and say, here, this is what I believe in. But then you throw in all these other things and throw in social media, throw in all of these other elements. Now it it makes it a little bit easier to understand challenges that people face. Absolutely. I just kept picturing it snowball the way Chris was talking there with like, mm-hmm. it kept getting bigger and bigger, throwing social media, bigger, bigger policy, growing and growing and I see you knocking everyone over and <clears throat> I have a tendency to do that. You know, nice. <laughs> yes. I do think about the, like some of the other things that I think in this space is, is like, we all learn things when we're real little, right? Unconsciously. Like we just grow up. You're four years old, you're eight years old, you're 10 years old. Like you're not consciously learning 
stereotypes or beliefs about a group of people. And likely you're not even being consciously like plot them. It's just what you absorb around you. But the, mm-hmm. the, what we're really talking about here today, like learning how to undo some of the impacts of stigma and what we can all do requires a really conscious sort of unlearning, right? So it's not as easy as just being like, oh, well, now that I know something, I've been educated, I'm aware. Changing attitudes, like your actual attitudes and beliefs and behaviors, I mean, it just takes time and it's a conscious effort. So it's an ongoing thing. And I think well, I know one of the things we'll talk about later are some of those like smaller actionable steps. But man, do you have to have those things because otherwise it feels like a big, big task. So with that, I'll ask you, Rachel, what are some of those challenges to individual unlearning, if you will? Yeah. So I'm going to start with some of the challenges to like individual unlearning. I'm going to step over for a second to talk a little bit about kind of what sits under the umbrella of stigma, right? So there's a whole bunch of different components here and it can kind of help illustrate, I think, how you can break it down to do these low chunks. So when we look at, you know, the ways that stigma really manifests, we can look at things like labels, right? So labeling like using the term addict, using the term junkie, abuser, drug abuser, labels like that, or even labels that like don't specifically have to do with substance use, but like you're saying it because they're using substances like, oh, she's a bad mother or he's a bad son, something like that, or unreliable or dangerous. Those are all labels, Mm -hmm. labels that we can put out there in the world. So an unlearning example in that particular realm would be more around language change, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you're looking at something small that like we know that language impacts people's beliefs and it impacts their attitudes, there's there's a whole wealth of literature that demonstrates that. So an unlearning thing that you're doing, not only for yourself, you're retraining your brain to not use certain words, but that also impacts the people around you, right? So that's an example, one example of unlearning. Some of those other components, you know, are, it's a little bit different. Discrimination is one of the five components, but I would say the other stereotyping is as well. And stereotyping, again, something we learned from a young age, but the other two that I would say have some of that kind of, you know, that, that conscious unlearning potential. One is about social distance. So one of the ways that stigma manifests is a desire for, for social distance. Like, I don't want to be near you because. You don't want to be near me because. So in the mm. substance use space, it's like, I don't want a person with a substance use disorder as my neighbor. I don't want them in my workplace, et cetera, et cetera. The social isolation is also a huge barrier to treatment and recovery, right? Because if you if those doors are closed, where are you going to go, right? Yeah. If huh. So when I think about that, I think about, again, language, like, because if you're just sitting out there and you're just like talking, you're just chatting with people and you're out at a park somewhere, or you're in a group setting for some reason and you say something and it's kind of judgy or whatever, you probably already have neighbors and people who are close personal friends with substance use disorder. So like, what is, you're really kind of like shutting that door if they're hearing you say that, but also really pushing yourself to feel like, how do you make sure that you're not closing those doors. How are you changing your own attitudes and hearts to say, if I have somebody with a substance use disorder as my neighbor, that's okay. What do I need to do then to feel safe, secure, whatever your concerns are, but really breaking down those cognitive components in your brain and saying, why don't I want this person here? 
what does it need to look like? Because if we just continue to relegate people to the edges of society, we can't bring them back in in the way just because we then are like, oh, well, now I feel bad or now I support this. So what does it mean to learn about those social distance components to really reduce that? And then the last thing is about status, right? And what they call status loss. And that is like the person who's experiencing the stigma means that we don't want them as a supervisor at work. We don't want them to marry into our family. We don't want them to have any sort of position of authority. But what we actually see is those attitudes track all the way through to like impacting people who have been in recovery for well over a year. So it, the, now then it's like, well, what what is the point, right? So it's like, I'm still going to be stigmatized against why would I share my story? Why would I be out in public? Why would I, like, I'm still not going to be accepted. So really looking at what does it look like to think about that like that position of authority and what does it look like to, to build that trust and this goes all the different ways it, it it's not just one person but i think about those three things the, the labeling the status lost and the distancing is kind of those three places where we can really do some of that internal work so so when you were talking about sexual distance and the way you described it and neighbors and everything and first thing people think of about X, your neighbor's X, whatever. So my mind went straight to news broadcast. It went straight to social media. Mm -hmm. It went straight there saying, this is in your face all the time. These are the bad people in this world. These are the people that are robbing our stores that are doing this, doing that. And then you factor in an unlearning. Like it's, it's tough when for generations, that's all you see. And now you have to right. break it down and unlearn and so my head's spinning right now. So <laughs> Yeah, I know. I was talking a little bit earlier today about just like generational stuff, like what you see, what you learn. I mean, if I look at my grandparents, I have a, a, three of the four had some sort of substance use or mental health thing. My parents have not dealt with either of those things in particular, but or really their siblings, but like my cousins, my generation, there's a lot of substance use and mental health stuff just within like the family. So you look at like mm -hmm. how that gets traced up and out and over and just, there's also that side of it too, just yeah. intrinsically like where, where you come from, what your history is. So. Yeah. And now that you say that and you talk about the different generations, I was thinking internally within my own family, we have recovering addicts within our family. It's kind of you can close your eyes and tell what generation the person is and when they're describing that person, because it could be <laughs> me saying, oh, that's my cousin. Sure. And meanwhile, it could be an older relative, an aunt or, or someone older saying, oh, that's my nephew. He's an addict. He's a reformed addict. It feels mm -hmm. like they always have to announce yeah. that when they go right. to the place. Yeah. So they need some unlearning. <laughs> yeah. And it's an interesting thing, right? Because and sometimes just talking about something does help normalize, humanize, destigmatize. So talking about it isn't intrinsic, but then it's also like whose story is being shared and why yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and with what permission. So And the other side of that too is, I mean, if you look back to our, you know, my grandparents generated mm -hmm. kind of the same thing that, that you both just said, nobody talked about it. No. It was like, oh, like John said, oh, that's the cousin. And it was just kind of like always shoved under it. And it's, it's interesting too, because now, and I think this is kind of the element of this to kind of add on to what John said. Now it's so prevalent. Now it's, it's almost like there's so many opportunities to talk about it, which is fantastic. But at the same time, it can be so overwhelming because a lot of the times, what do you say? 
Right. You know, I'm completely open. I'm completely supportive of this. But at the same time, I don't know what to say to this. I'll give you an example. I was having a conversation about this about two weeks ago. I equated it to having that conversation, mental health and addiction and those type of things is almost like the equivalent of like the sexual harassment comments mm -hmm. and topic that happened 10, 15, 20 years ago. And mm -hmm. we've learned how to handle that. So we'll learn how to handle these types of conversations. But at this point, it's infancy so much that it's, what do we say? How do we say it? So Rachel, that's my question to you is, sure. what do we say? Okay. How do we do this? I was actually thinking a little bit about what you mentioned earlier when, and I, we went off on a bit of a tangent there, but talking about like some of the barriers to the conscious unlearning stuff, because I was just thinking about like, honest to God, just like society. Mm -hmm. It's hard right now. I mean, there are so many different reasons, but if you look at like a list of risk factors for substance use, like the biological components, there's the psychological components, there's the genetic components, but there's also the environmental stuff, right? Lack of socioeconomic stability, you know, violence, trauma, sexual identity can be one in there too. Race, obviously. These things are these things disproportionately impact People like oh, I, there was a report that came out from the Trust for America's Health. I think this just came out like, honestly, it might have been today. I don't know. It was today that looking at, you know, the U.S. death rate due to alcohol, drugs and suicide increased by 11 percent in 2021. And none of us are particularly in the field or particularly like surprised at that per se. But when you look at some of the things that play in this space, I mean, be call it what you may. Some of it's like that deaths of despair type stuff. Right. So it's like. It is society in and of itself. So when you're talking about like individual actions, what can we say? What can we do? I also just want to say to like anybody who's listening to this that just recognize that like we are working in a system in a country in a space right now where this is really hard. So like we really can only do our individual actions and then do stuff like this to advocate for greater change, right? But man, is it hard sometimes. So just wanted to take a minute to recognize the work that y'all are doing every day because like working in this space is just hard. So individual actions and what can you say i mean i guess i would start with what you can't say i guess can't over promise right so let's just say that john i'm coming to you because i've got a thing right and like your gut instinct is to like say okay i'm gonna help you we're gonna fix this it's gonna be okay we're gonna do this that and you're gonna be fine sometimes we don't know that right we don't necessarily know what it is so first of all i would say don't over promise right not only be careful of your language just don't over promise and that goes professionally, personally, whatever the case may be. I think the second thing is learning, taking the time to learn, right? So like if you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know what somebody would, I would do if somebody came to me with, I need help for my substance use. I need help with um, cocaine, alcohol, opioids, whatever. Well, that is an action that you can take. You can you know, learn about the SAMHSA's treatment locator. Shatterproof has a tool called Atlas in Pennsylvania, actually. So you can take a look at that as an addiction treatment locator, learn how to use it. You can help people that way. You can also just learn about what some of the local resources are, just generally speaking about things that are kind of adjacent to this space sometimes. So, you know, people who are experiencing houselessness, food insecurity, learning like the app, making that link is a big step. So even if you don't know what to say personally, or you're hearing some stuff that you're kind of like, oh, that's kind of shocking, or I'm having a bit of a reaction and I don't know what to do. Understanding the resources available when people are feeling super vulnerable, it's really hard to navigate complicated systems. So understanding some of those resources, helping get somebody signed up for healthcare, like that kind of stuff, 
those tangible actions can really, those like two minutes to like look some stuff up can really help change somebody's life. Nice. Agreed. Good stuff. So you have those tangible actions and then, and then on the other hand, you have some unlearning items you need to unlearn, you know, Mm -hmm. but, and this all helps in part of the reducing stigma and I'd like to hear your response about why it's important to reduce stigma. I mean, I have opinion, Chris has mine, but I guarantee yours will sound way better than us. So, why is Well, that's so that's much pressure now. What if it doesn't sound good? <laughs> Trust me, our bar is really low compared to all the stuff you're talking about. So you're yeah. good. So stigma drives shame and social isolation and address policies that decrease access to care and it drives i mean essentially it's one of the main drivers that sits behind a lot of the forces behind the overdose epidemic in this country right so i mean there is that like purely logical thing that i'm saying right now which is that quite literally it's a barrier to treatment and recovery and wellness it is also a barrier to getting access to like high quality services specifically around medications for opioid use disorder, harm reduction services, whatever the whatever it may be, stigma plays a role. So you make everything else we're doing more effective, we have to address stigma, right? You can remove all of the logistical barriers you want, make it easier to prescribe buprenorphine. You can, you know, put a syringe exchange in a pro- program in a city and, and none of it's going to really impact unless you change the stigma around, you know, some of some of these services, but the heart answer, right? The heart answer, the non-logistic answer is that like our worth to ourselves and our families and communities and society should never be predicated on our health status. Like no matter where we sit within that realm of, of health, it'd be that substance use disorders, mental health, other health conditions or, or, or other stigmatized conditions or stigmatizing like circumstances or labels or whatever identities None of that should impact like our intrinsic level of worth or care or respect or support from society. And all of us have experienced that at some point or another where we haven't been supported or we have felt left behind by the world, right? And by our, our families or communities. And, and, and it can, it's, a, it's a horrible feeling. And it really just, I mean, the harm that that does, really it can't be stated, that feeling of of like abandonment and loneliness and, and judgment. So I think my heart answer is we're all human at the end of the day and nobody should feel that way. Nobody should be made to feel that way on the count of themselves or somebody they love. Agreed. Great answer. I would just add that everything you said is awesome, but as a parent now, I feel like it helps with future generations when, mm-hmm. when you correct your kids. When I say something, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Or I shouldn't have, you know, whatever. It's a different factor, a different mindset internally. Well, Ray, so I have a feeling we could talk about this for <laughs> hours and hours and hours. <laughs> and we would share so much information, but I, unfortunately, we do have to stop. But That's fine. I, I, I get say, that. <laughs> I want to thank you for joining us again yeah. today because this has been fantastic. And I, I have a feeling that we're going to be talking to you yet again in the future about this. And thank you for helping us understand ways that as an industry or as as an employer, or as mm-hmm. a friend, as a human, as you just said, we can help to reduce that stigma to help people that are in need. And I think that's really what it comes down to. So I thank you so much for joining us today and can't wait to talk again.
Yeah, I really appreciate you guys having me. And I would just encourage everybody to remember in wherever you are professionally, personally, I know in the construction industry, obviously this is a huge topic. A lot of the time that taking like the two minutes can really help change somebody's life for the better. And that's a place where I think we can all, we can all spend the time. We can all spend two minutes, right? It doesn't have to be moving mountains, but that's where we can start. Awesome. Once again, you brought your A game. Good stuff. <laughs> yep. Great to you talk to it, you guys. Uh, thanks, Rachel. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for joining the Building PA Podcast. To stay up to date, follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook and visit buildingpapodcast.com to subscribe to upcoming shows. Thanks for listening.